When I first came to work at IHI in the summer of 2004, a common phrase I heard again and again was, the patient is in the room. That didn't always mean literally in the room so much as the patient's view was represented and considered, and often in a story form. And the idea was to remind healthcare providers and all those working on better quality, in case they forgot, that the whole point of the endeavor was and is the patient. Something else that was said in those days in the form of of an appeal, really, was, you can influence providers, IHI. We, patients, don't have this access. You can prevail upon providers to listen in ways that we cannot. Well, a lot has changed. Individuals representing the needs and views and experiences of patients and families are in the room for real these days, and they are having direct conversations with providers and leaders and hospital trustees and collaborating on quality improvements, especially in the hospital setting, from A to Z. We're talking about the work of patient and family advisory councils on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and also on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We have a virtual room full of experts today to demonstrate how effective patient and family advisory councils can be. Let me briefly introduce our guests, and they'll be filling things in more in just a moment. Also, there are further details about each of our guests on the WIHI webpages for this program. So, Brandilyn Bergstedt is the coordinator for the Patient and Family Advisor Program at Evergreen Hospital Medical Center in the Seattle area. Welcome, Brandilyn. Hello, good morning. All right, great. Brandilyn works closely with Cindy Sayre, who is the Director of Professional Practice and Patient and Family-Centered Care at the University of Washington Medical Center, also in Seattle. Welcome, Cindy. Hello. Moving east, Christine White is joining us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Christine is the Vice President for Innovation and Patient Affairs at Spectrum Health System. Welcome, Chris. Good afternoon. And wonderful to see you uh, and your photo here and, and to hear you. Dorothea Handron is a member of the Patient Family Advisory Council at Pitt County Memorial Hospital in Greenville, North Carolina. That's part of University Health Systems of Eastern Carolina. Welcome, Dorothea. Hi, Matt. Terrific. Glad you're here. And in my neck of the woods, joining us by listening in is Martha Hayward. Martha is Executive Director of the Partnership for Healthcare Excellence in Massachusetts and a member of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Patient Family Patient Advisory Council. She's unfortunately not able to join us today in a speaking role because of an infected cat bite. That's her mother's cat. That's the culprit that wound up needing some surgical attention in addition to animal Antibiotics. So we're sending Martha our best as she recovers in the hospital, and we hope to have her on WIHI another time. So we've got uh, close to 500 of you who've joined us today, over close to 900 actually enrolled, so that's a good sign of interest. And to get things rolling, I like to mix things up, keep Jesse on his toes around here about is the chat open or is the chat closed. I sometimes do a very quick poll at the top just to kind of make sure you're all awake and with us and just to get a 
sense of who's with us. So I have two very quick questions for those of you who've joined and are joining us um, via the computer and therefore can use the chat function. And the way you answer yes is by using uh, the hand uh, that's there. I think Jesse pointed that out. That's uh, just above the little um, icon that says uh, chat, and there's a little hand there. So I'd like you to use the hand icon to signify yes in telling me how many of you are with us today are actively involved in or helping to coordinate patient family advisory councils in your organization. I'd like to know how many of you actually have that role, uh, just to get a sense of, uh, I guess, kind of level of knowledge and expertise uh, that will be joining those that of our guests. All right, here we go. And if anybody's just on the phone, we're climbing up. I got to about 83, 84, 85. Let's see if we're going any higher than that. Well, maybe we'll climb over 100. Um, that's pretty good. Oh, looks like we're kind of maybe topping out around 100 or so. That's very good. Okay, I got one more question for everybody. That's very, very good to know. So about a, a really a fourth of you who've joined today. Using that same hand icon, how many would like to get going on creating Patient Family Advisory Council at your organization? And you're really hoping that today's program can maybe spur things along. Give me a sense of that. Hope and expectation. <laughs> That'll put the pressure on all of us. All right, we're going up. Okay, so we're at about, well, we're climbing. We definitely went over 100 on that uh, of our connective, connecting lines. Um, all right, about 140. Uh, and the rest of you, I think, are trying to make up your mind and uh, along for the edification. So that's terrific. Um, so thank you very much for those uh, questions. Now, Jesse, we can close off the chat and we'll be back with all of you, our participants, for questions and comments in just a little bit. So there's no way to have a program about patient family advisory councils. And if you're going to, if you can forgive me, I will start saying PFAC from time to time. If that gets obnoxious, let me know. Uh, just so the, it'll, it'll save time in the long run. But anyway, there's no way to describe PFACs without giving all of you a sense of what's possible. So so starting with Brandilyn, I've asked each of our guests to present, and here's the challenge, three minutes worth of information about the work they know best. And I want to say that uh, we also have some slides that each guest gave us that has a lot more information, and that'll help augment their comments. A reminder, you can download those slides at the end of the program when you log off, or if you're only joining us by phone, you can get those slides by emailing info at IHI.org. So Brandilyn, I'm going going to start with you, and I'm going to be a strict timekeeper only in that I want to make sure we get to cross-cutting issues and also the interests of our participants. So, Brandilyn, you'll show us the way. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, just to give everybody an idea of where we're coming from, uh, Evergreen is a growing healthcare system in Kirkland, Washington. Uh, we provide excellence and expertise in over 50 different specialties, including cardiac, oncology, surgery, neurosciences, a pulmonary, orthopedic, spine, and women's and children's. Uh, we have a 275-bed hospital, a 15-bed inpatient hospice center, a primary and urgent care centers, home care, and a 24-hour nurse hotline, in addition to the different community health outreach and uh, education programs that we offer. Uh, 
To understand how we began with advisors, you really have to understand how Evergreen was started uh, back in the 60s when uh, the suburbs of Seattle were just starting to sprout up. We had a number of concerned residents come together and say, we think that we need a hospital actually in our area for our, for this area in particular. And they got together and they proposed forming a public hospital district to raise the money to build it with tax-supported bonds. And that happened. And in 1972, Evergreen opened its doors again uh, with the community as the driver. So it became uh, only natural to continue involving advisors, and we started doing that about 25 years ago with our community advisor program. And they provide input uh, really at the board and leadership level. They also act as ambassadors uh, for the different communities that they represent. Building on our community advisor program, I'll go into this a little bit later in the program, but we became it became very necessary for us to involve uh, patients and families in a, in a richer way so that we could uh, get them involved in uh, some more specific uh, activities at the department level rather than just at the board level. So we now have five patient family advisory councils active here at Evergreen uh, in children's mm-hmm. services, diabetes, neuroscience, oncology, and women's services. And then at uh, the next level down, you'll see we also uh, involve our patients and families in patient panels where they share their stories with our staff. We conduct focus groups uh, at different times during the year on specific issues. And we also have patients that have uh, volunteered to do document review for us. That's usually done over email, and it can provide really up-to-the-minute feedback for our staff. Uh, some of the key accomplishments that we've had, uh, they provide input on everything from uh, developing prototypes for new facilities, developing peer mentoring programs, they revise patient education documents for us. Uh, some of the things that I'm particularly proud of are the patient and family orientations that we develop for children's services. Uh, they're working on discharge packet information right now. Uh, one of the things I love is when I'm, whenever I'm in the halls now, I get staff uh, directors and managers stopping me to say, hey, can we get a focus group going next month? Or I heard the great work that's being done in the Patient Family Advisory Council can we have a couple of them come to our staff meeting and talk more about uh, the programs that they're trying to develop? All right. So you, you mean you timed it at three minutes exactly? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to say, in case this uh, slide looks a little blurry, it won't uh, on the screen. It won't when you when you download it. And really what I asked everyone to do, including Brandilyn from Evergreen, was just to tick off all the accomplishments because I think it is truly amazing in the same way that it's, well, I shouldn't say amazing, but impressive because I think people think, first of all, this is a new phenomenon. I think people would imagine that patient family advisors councils and many organizations are just kind of working around the edges of institutions. Um, So in addition to the long history at Evergreen, uh, look at all the things that they've been doing. So um, thanks, Brandilyn, and we'll kind of circle back with you with with some questions to get more into it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, great. Dorothea, you're up next. Yes, thank you. Um, As a volunteer, I started working on our advisory council for Pitt County Memorial Hospital in the spring of 2009. But as you, when you look at our slide, prior to 2007, there were successful efforts being made to solicit patients and families' input about their care in pediatrics and rehab, which are typical areas that often are just natural uh, places to start this orientation. But the paradigm shift to patient-centered care did not cross to other services at that time. And that was really because there was no executive or governing body within the organization that had bought in to the concept. If you look at our timeline after 2007, you will observe that small tests of change in which the executive staff and leaders began to demonstrate their commitment to this in words, 
actions, and most importantly, I think, in provision of resources to advance the needs of patients and families throughout the organization, thereby truly changing the cultural landscape of healthcare delivery at UHS. Right now, six of our eight hospitals have advisory councils, and all entities across the system will have advisory councils by the end of this year. This includes home health, hospice care, our surgery center, and physician office practices. Our advisors can be found throughout the Academic Health Center at PCMH and at corporate levels in UHS. PCMH has 850 beds, and University Health System serves roughly one-third of the eastern part of the state of North Carolina's population. Because of the size of our organization at PCMH, we are rolling out specific service line advisory councils, as well as the general council that's been in place now for several years. Part of that initiative, um, as part of that initiative, I'm going to have the opportunity to co-chair the medicine service line during the latter part of the, part of the spring, and I'm really looking forward to that. I also serve on the Corporate Quality Committee, and I sit on the Board of Directors Quality Improvement Subcommittee as an advisor. Now, I was relatively new to the advisor role when I was invited to present the first story of a patient's experience to the board, and I'll tell you, I was very, very nervous about it. But five minutes into my presentation, I could discern a notable change in the climate of um, the room. Indeed, I had become a real person with a family that was deeply affected by the severity of my surgical complications. I was no longer just a number on a quality scorecard. A patient story is now a quarterly event at our QIC meeting. This transformation to patient and family-centered care has not occurred overnight. As a matter of fact, again, if you look at my slide later, it has taken us over a decade to get where we are now. The fact that throughout our hospitals at meetings, staff now routinely can be heard to say, what would patients and families say about this? We know that we are steadily and most assuredly exceeding our goal to embed best practices of patient and family-centered care into everything that we do. Thank you, Dorothea. And uh, I want to um, also acknowledge uh, some of these nice visuals uh, that give mm -hmm. you a sense of, of the organization and uh, some of the actual materials that have been developed. And I think, Jesse, we had one more slide there. Um, some of the things that sort of underscore what Dorothy is talking about in terms of meaningful roles. Um, very interesting, Dorothy, to hear your comment also about just the very fact of sitting in a room with you and engaging with you and how that begins uh, a process of transformation. So again, we're going to get to some of the cross-cutting issues, uh, but let's uh, turn to Cindy Sarah next um, from the University of Washington. Thanks, Dorothea. Hi. Thank Hi. you for having me. Hi, Cindy. Yes. So um, just a quick word about University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. We are a referral um, academic medical center for a five-state region. We specialize in organ transplants and bone marrow transplants, um, oncology, and heart surgery. So at University of Washington Medical Center in 2002, our chief nursing officer at the time, Susan Grant, and Cezanne Garcia 
began the patient family-centered care program here with two inpatient councils. We currently have seven um, active councils that are comprised of uh, patients and family members and staff. We try to make it uh, at least half and half. Some councils actually have more patients than staff, and some, sometimes there's a few more staff than patients. The populations that are represented are intensive care unit, our solid organ transplants, rehab, our mother-baby council, uh, neonatal ICU, inpatient oncology, and our outpatient councils. The uh, advisors also serve on a variety of clinical committees. For example, our inpatient clinical performance council, which is all of the nurse managers and their medical director partners, we have a patient advisor on that committee, and working with us on our um, service excellence uh, initiatives, um, we have patient advisors. We also have a document review program that I believe Brandilyn described that she has. Some of the things that I am just most proud of, our ICU council has started a liaison program where members of their council go to um, the ICUs and pour coffee for patients and families, um, provide a listening ear, sometimes uh, help families that are here from out of town figure out how to get their laundry done, how to, how to get food. They just are kind of that extra link of caring uh, to our healthcare team, and that has been a very successful program. Uh, Brandilyn actually participates in our uh, resident um, orientation program that we have with our neonatal ICU council that has been very well received by those residents where there's um, guided um, discussions with the residents to help them understand the experience of being a parent uh, in the NICU. So those are just some of the, the highlights. And we do use a lot of patient stories, actually. We try to start all of our meetings with a patient story and have the patient come and tell it in their own words as often as we can. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. And I, I want to, Cindy, and I want to thank everybody uh, of, of the guests for putting some of these things down in, into slides. I know we've, we're kind of compacting a lot, but we hope it will just give you a sense of some things and uh, you can then learn a lot more. All right, uh, Chris uh, White uh, in Michigan, welcome and um, really appreciate your sharing what's going on at Spectrum. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to join this conversation. Um, I will give you just a high level of Spectrum Health for those of you who are unfamiliar. We are seated in West Michigan. We are the largest health system in the area and actually we are an integrated delivery system. We consist of a hospital group with nine hospitals and growing everything from a uh, critical access hospitals to an 800 bed in the medical center, um, tertiary moving to quaternary care, strong um, emphasis with the children's hospital and um, transplants and, and cardiac surgery and large orthopedic, et cetera. Large post-acute set of services with rehab, nursing home beds, Altex, hospice, et cetera. And um, we have a growing, rapidly growing medical group with 500 providers in that, and we also have a payer in Priority Health, which is an HMO, um, as part of our health system. So we have very much an integrated delivery system. 
And I will tell you that we've had councils in place for about 15 years in our children's hospital and in 2006 made a very strategic decision as a health system to take a very coordinated and integrated and really strategic perspective of what advisors as partners um, add in the development and design and evaluation of healthcare services and um, and really strategic priorities. And so we became very um, strategic and purposeful in that work. And so today we have an executive council, which is the coordinating point for all of our council work. We have uh, eight other councils that relate um, sometimes to hospitals, sometimes to key service lines, um, really a variety of places with emerging councils, both in our HMO as well as in our full uh, post-acute set of services and the medical group, which before was part of the ambulatory. There's going to be a greater emphasis on that in this coming year. Um, you know, I think that we really believe that our design and our strategic priorities and our operational design and our valuation of care, both from a quality, safety, and experience perspective, has not ever been as strong as it's been with partners working alongside us, advisors working alongside us. And so you will see um, in some of the documents that we've put forward that um, they've, our advisors have been very helpful in um, prioritizing tactics um, within our strategic plan, both at a system level and service line level, and also very impactful in the design of programs and facilities um, that, that anywhere really the patients um, receive care in the community or in a, in a facility. They're um, absolutely designed, helped in the design of communications, patient education. They're regularly with medical students, nursing students, out in public forums. Um, helping spread that perspective uh, with with all sorts of um, people engaged in healthcare. We've done a lot of work around portals and trying to move, um, at least competing with banks and um, the airline industry about patients accessing information and engaging with the healthcare delivery system through electronic means. And they've been very much um, helpful in that space of really helping us understand what's important, what's helpful, what's not. And there's just, we could spend days and days talking about this. And I would just say from, a, um, uh, from the very senior levels in our organizations throughout our service lines, this has been, um, it's just an undeniable force of strength. Um, and efficiency and effectiveness by engaging patients and families in a very purposeful way through the council structure. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. And I, uh, we have a bunch. Uh, you, you also gave us a lot of accomplishments, and we broke it up in, into a couple of different slides. And again, uh, anyone who's just joining by phone, uh, go ahead and email info at ihi.org. Uh, and also, Jesse, well, you actually put the link in as well. Uh, but uh, for those on the computer now, or you can get them when you log off. But I, I think it's you know more than a list. Uh, I think what we're trying uh, now to do, uh, and thank you each for these very succinct uh, snapshots of what's going on. Um, I think some people may be surprised that there have been patient family advisory councils for as many years as there have been in some of the institutions, and that they're as prolific uh, even within any single organization or system. Chris, I'm 
going to uh, jump right back to you and also a reminder that if you've happened to have just joined us, you're tuned to WIHI and we're talking about patient and family advisory councils. We have a terrific panel and I'm your host, Madge Kaplan. Chris, let me go back to you now and say, because uh, we had a really nice planning conversation and we got into a lot of issues. Uh, we're going to try and touch on a few of them. What do you think makes a patient family advisory council effective? There's several key uh, experiences that I've seen replicated not only in every single council that we've uh, brought to life within our organization, but in several I've been involved with around the country. And I'm going to try to hit the top three or four things. The first one is absolute clarity of purpose. And understanding that this is an investment. And so what is the purpose of the council and how do you see them impacting and partnering within your organization? That's the first. The second is um, executive engagement. And I think there's no substitute, and this is the one thing I've seen absolutely in every organization, is a commitment from the very top of your organization uh, about the value and the purpose and the personal level of engagement Um, When you bring, I I call um, the best advisors constructively discontented (laughs) advisors, meaning people who are not hung up on a particular issue, but think there has to be a better way to deliver and receive health care and want to be a part of that solution and problem-solving experimentation. And I will tell you that in our organization at the executive council meeting, our president, our chief nurse, our chief medical officer, myself, our vice president of quality, there is about eight senior executives that every month commit to being there. And our patient advisors believe that is the single uh, most important thing in helping us move very quickly. Thank you, Chris. Um, Does anybody want to add to those kind of high level what makes for an effective patient family advisory council? Feel free to jump in. I got uh, Dorothea, Brandilyn, or Cindy. All right, well, I'll move on to my next. I I, I think these are kind of cross-cutting issues. Cindy, and then maybe Dorothy, you could add to this. Who do you think makes for a good advisor or a member of a patient family advisory council? Well, yes, I I really liked Chris's phrase of constructively discontented. We're looking for people that have had um, some type of significant experience. We like, you know, either the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think what's important is that the person that you choose is able to view things from a broad perspective so that they don't necessarily have their own axe to grind. These um, councils can break down when the patient just keeps telling the same story over and over and, and you can tell there's a lot of anger attached to it as opposed to wanting to problem solve and move forward. We um, need them to be committed to making the meetings and to uh, to the follow-up that they say that they'll do. And then I think the thing that's challenging, these councils are best when they represent the population that you're caring for. And so it's always kind of a a struggle and a tension to get the um, diversity that you need to hear all of the different voices. We end up with a lot of um, people that have discretionary time to do this kind of work, and we may not hear from some of our marginalized populations. Mm-hmm. Interesting issue, uh, and maybe we can get into something about how you 
then do that um, outreach uh, to more marginalized populations who may not come forward in the same way. Thanks, Cindy. Dorothea, what would you add to that? And I know when we had our planning conversation, we all did talk about uh, ways that people would perhaps get interviewed, almost like a like a job. Uh, and you know, in some sense, there are very very clear expectations, etc. What who do you think makes for a good advisor? Well, uh, I think I'd first have to answer that question, Madge, yeah. with what makes an advisor unique. Yep. And I, I go back to Frederick Buckner, a theologian, who, who made this quote, said this quote, and I just love it. It's that we are called to find what breaks our hearts, then find where that heartbreak intersects with the needs of the world, and act on it. And I think it's a wonderful quote. That's a wonderful quote. Yeah. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It really touched me when Mm -hmm. I read it. And that heartbreak is what makes advisors passionate and really effective in terms of what they contribute to the organization. And I'll just, you know, share in terms of myself. You know, for over 25 years, I functioned as a nurse educator and a clin spec. And I rationally and conceptually believe that I understood what was important about healthcare delivery. I walked the halls of, of this hospital confident in my expertise, but I never knew how complex a call button could be till I woke up from a coma after two months and mm. discovered I couldn't operate one. Mm-hmm. And I never knew how truly long and frightening a night is in the hospital until I spent 91 nights in yep. a hospital. Yep. And so I'm, I'm, I think that passion about this work is very, very important. As a matter of fact, I think that this is the most important work that I've ever done in my life. So that I look for that in an, adv- in an advisor. Are they passionate? Whether we're talking about whiteboards, signs, pain management, physician communication, there needs to be that scent of fire in their bellies. And uh, it also is that these have to be folks who I think can work in an equal partnership with staff and administrators so that we make things happen for, fa- for patients and families together as equals, but our passion is really what I think makes it, makes it special and makes it work. And along those lines, I'd just like to add one other quality, which is I think you need optimists on patients. Hmm. Council, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really not going to help you out too much if if you've got uh, the glasses half empty kind of folks sitting around the table, because in today's realm of healthcare delivery and healthcare reform, we really need people, frankly, like myself, who are pretty excited and um, view the glasses half full and want to give you some of our energy to get the job done. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Dorothea. We're going to get a couple of remarks from Brandilyn, and then we uh, get ready because we're going to open things up for questions and comments. Brandilyn, I'm wondering, uh, I think you may hold the record, at least among our panelists here, in terms of the work at Evergreen. It seems like it was written right into almost the founding of the organization that there would be advisors. So you've seen, um, not you personally, but a lot has gone, (laughs) yeah, right, (laughs) 
We we saw your picture. <laughs> we know like that old. you haven't been around for that long. That's true. Me on the other hand, but I you've um a lot has changed over the years, and one of the things that we did all discuss as we were talking about uh, today's program is some of that passion can make a lot of others nervous, particularly on the leadership side, uh, provider side. We don't want to get too rosy here in that folks have to learn how to uh, kind of accept and take that passion. And maybe you could use that as a jumping off point for the kinds, how you think maybe that is can be managed and, and constructively uh, uh, put in play. And maybe a couple of other things that uh, you've learned along the way or that have changed over the years. Sure. Well, thank you so much. I mean, as you said, we've had advisors present at Evergreen for, for over 25 years, almost since the very day we opened our doors. And, you know, like any organization, we've heard from the others that we had our naysayers, certainly. Uh, but what we've learned is that, uh, you know, what we think is important isn't always what's most important to patient and families. Uh, you know, as they began, as our staff began to see how including patients at the table could save both time and money, uh, Evergreen's leadership really started looking at ways uh, to maximize patient and family involvement here. And that's really the key. I think, you know, we hear so often from people, is this going to cost us money? Is this something that's going to be worth our while? And what we found is that patients and family members of patients, because it's important to include everybody uh, that has experiences here, once they provide that, that really rich input, it actually helps us get things right the first time. It saves us from having to uh, operate through trial and error. We can actually go to our patients and families whenever we're deciding to make a change or the, you know, in a clinical practice, a document, you know, whatever it is, and say, you know, is this something that's going to work for you? Is this something that would be effective right now uh, given the needs of our community and given the needs of your particular family? And so... Our staff have just seen the wonderful, rich ways that, that our families can enrich our programming, but also to really help us be uh, financially responsible as well. Um, so, you know, for over 25 years, we've had our community advisors, and they've really taken the time to learn about the services we offer to provide input at the board level and then act as ambassadors uh, throughout the neighborhoods that they represent. But over time, uh, we really wanted advisors to get involved at a deeper level um, you know, instead of simply providing input, uh, you know, at the board level or on new facilities during phases of extensive growth to really get more hands-on with the staff, to review patient education information, to look at ways to streamline current practices. You know, our advisors have gone from providing input at a community level to really using their individual experience as patients to provide our staff uh, with very, very timely information on what it feels like to be a patient in their department. Dorothea mentioned her 91 days. I think, you know, during my daughter's uh, four-month stay in intensive care, I certainly learned the same thing, that that uh, passion is what's important and that they can provide such a different perspective. Um, I remember when my daughter was in her isolate, I had nothing to do but watch the staff. So, of course, the UW came to me and said, gosh, you know, what did you see during that time? <laughs> right. And that's something that we can turn around and do with our patients here at Evergreen is what are, what are we missing? What are, the, what are the places that we can improve? Uh, what are the practices that need streamlining? Oh, you know, the thing that I think we get lost in is Sometimes we get so focused on our expertise and our excellence is, uh, you know, the patient is the one person who sees that experience from start to finish. Mm-hmm. They're, the one pe- they're the one person present for that. And so, of course, we should go back to them and, ex- and ask them for their opinions and their thoughts on how we can improve. And uh, we're very proud of what we've done here at Evergreen because of that. 
Really interesting. And thank you, Brandilyn. And I love your uh, that image, I'm sure, that many can relate to of uh, during a very extended hospital stay for yourself, family member, whomever, kind of uh, how, what we all pick up and learn uh, by observing day to day and turning that around into something constructive. All right. Well, listen, thank you, participants, for being very, very patient as we try to set the table here with a number of issues. Jesse's going to remind you about the use of chat and how you can get your questions in, and uh, then we'll take it from there. Uh, Thank you all so much for joining us. This is WIHI. So I just opened up the (laughs) chat window for everyone, and now you have the option to chat into all participants. So if you select all participants from the Send To menu, you can drop it down. That'll make sure that everyone who's on the program today on the computer is able to see your question or comment. Uh, And the first one to come in from Rhonda Bales, I'll just kind of throw this out to the group. Uh, How do you ensure you're able to implement policy change in a timely and efficient manner based on critical feedback you get, especially on issues that are directly related to patient safety? A kind of a a big topic question, but I think we can get some good discussion going around. All right. Thank you, Jesse. Chris, maybe I'll ask you, uh, because uh, things that have to do with maybe policy changes and safety uh, might also bubble right up to you in, in, in your senior level. How about you start off with that one? Yeah, thank you. You know, there's many ways that we can engage um, patients' feedback earlier in the process. And again, as I think we've matured in this process is that we now we have patients on the design team and on the medication safety team, for example, that they are right in the design and providing that feedback. We were earlier more at a last check before implementation sometimes bringing things to our councils and the patients would have such critical feedback that we like, you know, pull the chain and stop the train until we could regroup around that critical feedback that, you know, boy, what a blessing. And the wisdom that was shared was so powerful that we've backed it up into the process so that we have patients working side by side with us in some of these areas. Mm-hmm. So it's, it makes a much better, stronger process much quicker. And it just depends, I think, on what the topic is. Anyone else want to add to that? All right, we'll, we'll move along. Question. Thank you, Chris. And uh, again, maybe with that we'll get reinforced with some other questions and answers. Um, somebody is asking, uh, and this was actually one of my questions that I was holding in my back pocket, what are important steps for a new advisory council? And I recognizing that this could be in any number of areas in the organization, but are there some good thoughts and pointers if you're just getting started? Manja, I can take that one. Okay. Maybe. This is Cindy Sayer. Uh-huh. Um, so I would say one of the important things we've learned is that the patients need the chance to tell their story together. And so sometimes the first few meetings are really consumed by just hearing the stories. And people get a little impatient. They think, let's just get right to work. But I think that gives us all a chance to really hear the themes that are going to come out of that council and to make sure, as somebody else said, that we are identifying what's important to the patients. Because we could start a new council and have an idea of the great work they could do, and they may come up with something completely different. So those stories, I think, are very important. And I just wanted to make one other point about um, a successful council has that leader in the room also that can help bridge um, the communication between the patients and the organization. So how one way we get strategies implemented is is in real time we kind of are listening for what's what's reasonable or what's going to hit the roadblocks, and we might be able to help steer the conversation to the most uh, successful strategies. 
Okay, thank you very much. Anybody else want to add? Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. This yes. is Dorothea Handren. Uh, okay, go ahead, Dorothea. Yeah. Um, I think that it's very, very important to develop the group dynamics of um, an advisory council even before you really focus on specific issues. Um, uh, I think that establishing that healthy group dynamic is, is just everything to whether that group is going to become um, a really mean and, and clean uh, group. At first, the topics um, tended to be ones that we could be successful in and that we were likely going to have success in. And then as that happened, about a year from there, we found our own voice in establishing strong working relationships after establishing relationships with each other. And there was this sort of gentle shift from issues being driven by the hospital to developing our own strategic plans that complement the hospital's strategic framework. So I think that the first step, again, in, in establishing strong advisory councils is to let that group congeal, pick the right folks, and uh, then let it go from there. Okay. Was there somebody else who was trying to get in on that particular question around new councils? Yes, Madge, it's Brandilyn. Go ahead. From Kirkland. Yep. Uh, one of the things I was going to say was simply that when you're establishing a new advisory council, I think it's incredibly important um, to develop a system where you're supporting your advisors, that you know, to make sure that you have the right people in the room, to make sure that you go through those interviews, those, the orientation processes. I think so many times people are so excited and passionate about this work that they think, let's, let's get everybody in a room and let's hit the ground running. And really there are some benefits to having uh, people go through the hoops to make sure that they hit all of those important uh, milestones, having them go through an interview, conducting a really rich orientation for them that, you know, may be a full day or maybe even two full days long, uh, setting them up as volunteers of your hospital. Sometimes I hear the, the um, criticism that, gosh, is it, is it really fair when they're volunteering for us to put them through, you know, this sort of this many hoops before they can get the work done. But really what we've found is that you, you end up with people that are much more committed to your organization than ever before and that they have, uh, that they're the same people that are going to put in the time time to really get the work done um, once you, you, you establish those important steps to get them involved. Uh, and then once you do that, uh, really put them to work. I think we're often a little bit shy about using our advisors, uh, trying to be respectful of their time, but they're here to work. They're here to give you their expertise. We have advisors. Dorothea was talking about passion. Uh, one of my favorite things is to check my email in the morning because frequently I'll have uh, email from advisors at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning who've been working on something for us and they just can't wait to share it with me. Um, and then follow that up with, re with recognition program for them to really thank them for taking the time to, to be vulnerable with us, to be open with us about their experience. Thanks, Brandilyn. Uh, I do want to remind people, somebody also asked, uh, there is indeed an audio recording of this program that is made available after this one and every WIHI. It'll be posted by tomorrow morning. Uh, and uh, Jesse just threw up a slide there just to remind you where you can find it on IHI.org, also on iTunes. In addition, there is a resource document that we post to the website to go along with the archived recording that captures a lot of references that we knew about ahead of time and more that we learn about. And in that spirit, I do want to encourage people to follow the links to the various organizations represented today among our panelists, and you can hopefully uh, drill down, and we'll see. I mean, I can imagine there we could have shared a lot more material about your job descriptions and sort of the, the various uh, types of things that are used to interview, et cetera, et cetera, but I think you can probably drill down some of that on the website 
and we can see if it's necessary. We can see about getting you some more materials. Um, I'm going to group question, uh, sort of one set of questions and then another. So w one question has to do uh, um, related to measurement. Uh, folks uh, are curious about the extent to which advisory councils are involved in surveys in some ways, sort of getting the lay of the land about what issues uh, actually maybe need to be focused on uh, by virtue of inputs from uh, patients uh, and maybe staff as well throughout the organization. And then another question that's kind of on the other side or related, a kissing cousin, is the effectiveness of council and the councils and whether anyone has been doing any measurement or research on exactly what difference councils are making. Uh, let's start with the first one in terms of surveying. Anyone on that one? So nobody is actually, I, I, that doesn't tend to be a way that the councils sort of gather up their information based on surveys of what might be issues for folks who use the hospital? Matt. Go ahead. This is Chris. Hi, Chris. I, you know, we, we have a very purposeful planning um, process annually whereby we look at all the available data sets and we say to our advisors, what does this mean? <laughs> and we say, what are, what are the biggest issues? What are the biggest challenges? Where do you think the biggest gaps are? We compare it with data. We compare it with focus groups. We compare it with all the, our data sets. And then we sit down and we say, okay, where should our focus be over the next year? And that creates a synergy, not, not only amongst our executive council, but about all of our service line councils, so that we're, we're, we're purposely setting goals in the same arenas um, for our work to guide over the next year. It's not to say that we don't have teams and people coming forward looking for input throughout the course of the year, but we have a very purposeful planning that's based on data, current trends, current opportunities that we deploy amongst all of our councils um, to truly um, have impact. And then we measure it and we report on it annually. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Um, Go ahead. I would, I would also like to add, this is Dorothea, yeah. that, that we're very much driven by our age caps. And uh, we discuss those at most every meeting, um, and it's helped really drive our strategic framework, for example, you know, in pain management and um, in physician-patient communication, it's the age caps that have given us the, um, you know, the, the, what we needed to really push those as agenda items. Thank you. And is anyone aware, uh, thank you, Dorothea, is there anyone aware of any research? Uh, perhaps this program will help <laughs> jumpstart some research uh, on the effectiveness um, of PFACs uh, and what what is uh, how, how these organizations and this level of engagement is uh, changing and improving care. If not, I, I encourage our participants, uh, uh, if anybody knows of anything, go ahead and chat that in. And um, if we find out anything, we'll certainly let you know. All right. Well, that sounds like an area ripe for research. Another grouping of questions. I'm gonna. I'm trying to maybe knit a few together here. So it's a lot. It's, it, people are asking about culture change. How do you really get executives on board? What about uh, physicians? <laughs> Always seem to be the, uh, kind of a, a breed sometimes as uh, to how to make them interested. And uh, I, I'm just teasing here a little bit. But are there um, some folks are wondering uh, just really how do you make that culture shift uh, that everybody really is on board uh, I'm, I'm hearing in some of the comments here that some folks still see that as a barrier in their organizations anyone 
I, this is Cindy Sayer. Yep. Um, I think there's two key strategies. One is, as has been stated already, that the um, executive leadership or the senior leadership really needs to believe um, in the program and talk about it all the time. We um, had a culture shift here when our senior leadership started talking about the fact that we should all be delivering patient and family-centered care, which made people ask the question, well, what is that and how, how can we do it? We've also had success in engaging the physicians and um, we work around their schedules to some degree just to make that happen because they have some limitations. And then we just make sure that we are kind of actively including them in the work so that they're not just sitting in a 90-minute meeting without kind of any input. And they, they have a perspective and they also have uh, power, you know, to a degree over the care that our patients receive. And what's powerful is when they hear, they need to hear, they need to face these patients, you know, eyeball to eyeball and hear from them the issues. It's much different than me relaying the issues to the physician. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I would piggyback on that, Madge. This is Brandilyn, that I think the most effective way to engage physicians or, or any of your staff is to put patient stories in front of them. I don't think we've ever had... Uh, a a patient panel where we have four to five patients sharing their experiences where we have, uh, you know, had all dry eyes in the house. Uh, That's really where you capture the hearts and minds of of your staff and uh, your physician team. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, To what extent, I think Brandilyn brought this up or perhaps somebody else, somebody's asking for some elaboration on recognition. Uh, To what extent uh, do members of patient family advisory councils receive some sort of recognition? for their role, uh, a way that, uh, you know, sort of lends some appreciation for the effort. Sure, Madge. This is Brandilyn. Um, One of the things that we do for our advisors, we hold our volunteer services, holds their annual volunteer luncheon where advisors are included. It's a really uh, beautiful event where they can actually take the time to hear about some of the ways that they've impacted the hospital um, and take some downtime to really enjoy each other just as fellow participants. our staff actually send out, you know, thank yous to uh, advisors who are doing specific work in their units. Uh, one, of the, one of the best ways I think that you can recognize people is simply respecting their time and their needs. Uh, somebody had mentioned, you know, do you give advisors uh, food, I think, on the list of questions. And, for example, we have a council that meets uh, over lunch every second Monday of the month. So, yes, we absolutely serve lunch during that time. If they're going to take time away from their workday, we're certainly going to make sure that they're fed. Um, one of the best ways to, to recognize them is to invite them back and show them the impact of their work. So if they've developed a new facility with you, invite them in to tour the facility before it opens. Show them the impact of the great work that they're doing. And then the other thing that I think is important here at Evergreen is that because I'm able to manage the advisor program and that's my only job, I'm really able to develop those relationships with advisors that um, make them feel recognized every day, both professionally in the work that they do here for us in the hospital, but also personally. We've had an advisor recently whose child is having surgery. I, w- I knew that. I was able to call her that day and, and wish her child well and, and call the follow-up. Um, just recognizing that they are, are taking time away from their families to be with us. And so it's important for us to take time and recognize uh, their family and what they're struggling with or what they're going through and thank them so much for their dedication. Thank you. Jesse. And uh, we just got a chat from Jan Bird, and their program covers for elder care, child care, lunch, parking, and, and mileage. So there's a lot of different models out there for, for how to, you know, reimburse or congratulate these members. Yes, thank you. Yes, go ahead. 
Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. Dorothea, there's also um, very important in, in our organization is that they pay for us to attend pa- uh, patient family centered care conferences. Terrific. I've presented um, at a couple of other um, venues, and all of my expenses have been paid. Uh, I always say you eat very, very well when you're an advisor because you're fed well wherever you go, and then we also support mileage and any out-of-pocket expenses. One of the things that I think in the future to talk about, when you talk about getting that more heterogeneous representation, is looking at paying for even other expenses such as babysitting, um, things like that, that would encourage, you know, that would encourage a more diverse cultural group. to be able to be part of these councils. Interesting. Somebody is is not letting us off easy on the executive buy-on in here. They're still wondering if that glass is half-endy, and they've got some dollar signs up here, uh, wondering really uh, what does get the executive attention and whether or not uh, research or data need to uh, be presented that really show the demonstrable impact or effect of patient family advisory councils on changing any number of things in the organization for the better. Chris, I hate to pick on you as our representative executive here, but uh, anything more you can add to that? Yeah, yeah, I can as a highly engaged executive and in working with a bunch of executives that frankly I have to rotate them through the close engagement because it's of such value to them. Uh-huh. And that that is really dealing with real issues with the proper infrastructure to, to make change and to drive it forward. So I can think of so many examples um, as when we built our heart hospital. Um, we were into all the cool technology and, and the patient locators and, you know, the, the best things currently available on the market from a technology and quality perspective. And we had a patient with us in that meeting that raised her hand and she just said, um, I just want to not feel guilty if I'm being diuresed and I need to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And it just completely brought a piece of reality when we designed our our cancer center yep. to say it wasn't patient centric enough. Where is my support person? I don't want to be lateral to them. How 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 does this ensure my safety and privacy? When we posted our charges on the web, our our, our costs on the web several years ago, we halted that process because our methodology was flawed, and our patients said that doesn't make sense. It's not how we think and how we feel. Mm. And so you have executives with them in this dialogue they say things like please stop calling it discharge call it transition because mm-hmm. i'm transitioning to home i feel like i'm being kicked out of the army mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. So you, you hear the the rare the authentic um perspective and, and get pushed in directions that we wouldn't think of and that becomes an invaluable commodity executive. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, I want it, Dorothea, and I hope I'm not making any assumptions. Uh, somebody has asked a question about uh, sort of any particular kind of rules of the road for small rural hospitals and patient family advisory councils. Um, I'm just wondering in, in the university health systems if, if there might be some experience with that or anything kind of unique to that maybe in terms of distances or just whether there's the infrastructure in quite the same way to support it? Well, we have uh, people that drive two hours to attend our advisory council meetings, and we also use teleconference um, so that we can, you know, be in touch with people, obviously, at far distances. I mean, one of the things with a rural, that that gets back to my my comments about passion, because... um, 
and also some of it ties in many of the things we've been talking about today because you do have to, you know, to, you have to entice people to feel that they are, uh, that they want to make this kind of commitment, in, particularly in rural areas, because it's not easy. Um, and just like we at times have pa- problems with patient compliance to medication regimens because of uh, the distance they are from, from the institution, so too, uh, you have to get creative. We also have meetings in different places, mm-hmm. and so I've been known to, you know, attend meetings in Williamston, um, and that offsets expenses for the folks that are out in that area. So you just have to kind of get creative, Madge, and yep. um, All right, figure that, out what you can come up with. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Well, you know, we are sort of rolling up to the top of the hour here. And um, maybe we'll let somebody have a parting word here. Somebody is asking, I guess that's Lori Michaels asking, how do you solicit advisors? Uh, it sounds like in some ways many of you are part of processes that have sort of almost folks come forward organically. But uh, is there hospital signage, letters, advertisements? Is there some uh, promotion to let people know that some councils may be looking for people? Uh, anyone quickly want to address that? Match, this is Brandilyn okay, uh, from Evergreen. Okay. We solicit advisors. I, I, I notice on the chat Kathleen Keller is saying a recommendation, you know, from a nomination from a staff person. We certainly do that. It's one of the best ways to uh, really identify people who are going to have rich participation. We do have a brochure that sits in different places in our hospital that introduces patients to our patient family center care program and our patient adv- advisor program. So it helps them uh, learn about the program a little bit before they contact me to become involved. Uh, one of the other ways we do it is we have a uh, magazine called The Monitor that goes out in our public hospital district that shares patient stories, and we often will write about the advisor program there to uh, educate our our public hospital district and our residents on the different ways that they can impact uh, hospitals. Because many, you know, just as uh, hospitals are just coming on board, a lot of uh, residents and uh, patients don't actually know that they can do this work, and so it's important for us to to educate them and share with them the great wins that we've had. Matt? Yeah, go ahead. I'd just like to quickly add there that I think it's all about relationships. And we've had, honestly, the least effective means for us of of getting good members has been through posting information. Uh It's really been from members uh, telling us about other members and, of course, our supportive support staff that, um, you know, will suggest members. So I think that it's that relationship building that I'd like to emphasize. Okay, great. Well, listen, I I really hate every WHI. We often feel like, gee, we could go on for another half hour, but we know we've uh, barged into everyone's busy days. So we hope you'll uh, keep the conversation going among each other. And I want to a big shout out to all our guests today. Uh, Folks sometimes can't possibly appreciate, I mean, how much emailing we've all done uh, back and forth. And uh, speaking of volunteering on councils, I want to thank all of our guests who really put themselves out to work with me so that I had enough of the lay of the land to host this program and to uh, bring out all the expertise. Thanks also to all our participants. Next up on WIHI, and that's next week in March. We've got two that are back-to-back, March 17th, 2 to 3 p.m., Primary Cares, New Pressures and Possibilities, and we have another illustrious panel joining us to talk about that and all the information is on the website right now. You could enroll if you'd like right away. 
And I want to remind folks, again, you can get the resources uh, mentioned, referenced on today's program uh, in the archive section of the WIHI webpages of IHI.org, as well as the audio recording. Look under the Archive tab on the WIHI section of IHI.org. And don't forget, you can download the chat and all the slides we popped in today and that our panelists created for us. And if you, uh, or you can use the link that Jesse provided in the chat, or you can email info at IHI.org. Don't forget also, we have this survey that we ask people to fill out at the end of each program. We're always trying to do a better job, find out what worked for you, what didn't. And we're also becoming increasingly curious how many others might be listening or tuning in with you. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morrison, Vicki Mitchell. We have some nice music that opens and closes the show. The original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>